Chapter 11, Part 2 of The Annals of a Quiet Neighborhood. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Larry Wilson. Annals of a Quiet Neighborhood by George MacDonald. Chapter 11, Part 2 The Sermon on God and Mammon. I had more than ordinary attention during my discourse. At one point in which I saw the down-bent head of Catherine Weir sink yet lower upon her hands. After a moment, however, she sat more erect than before, though she never lifted her eyes to meet mine. I need not assure my reader that she was not present to my mind when I spoke the words that so far had moved her. Indeed, had I thought of her, I could not have spoken them. As I came out of the church, my people crowded about me with outstretched hands and good wishes. One woman, the aged wife of a more aged laborer, who could not get near me, called from the outskirts of the little crowd, May the Lord come and see ye every day, sir, and may ye never know the hunger and cold as me and Tompkins has come through. Amen to the first of your blessings, Mrs. Tompkins, and a hearty thanks to you. But I daren't say amen to the other part of it, after what I've been preaching, you know. But there'll be no harm if I say it for ye, sir? No, for God will give me what is good, even if your kind heart should pray against it. Ah, sir, ye don't know what it is to be hungry and cold. Neither shall you any more, if I can help it. God bless ye, sir, but we're pretty tidy just in the meantime. I walked home as usual on Sunday mornings by the road. It was a lovely day. The sun shone so warm that you could not help thinking of what he would be able to do before long. Draw primroses and buttercups out of the earth by force of sweet persuasive influences. But in the shadows lay fine webs of laces of ice, so delicately lovely that one could not but be glad of the cold, and made the water able to please itself by taking such graceful forms. And I wondered over again for the hundredth time what could be the principle which in the widest, most lawless, fantastically chaotic, apparently capricious work of nature always kept it beautiful. The beauty of holiness must be at the heart of it somehow, I thought, because our God is so free from stain, so loving, so unselfish, so good, so altogether what he wants us to be, so holy. Therefore all his works declare him in beauty. His fingers can touch nothing but to mold it into loveliness, and even the play of his elements is in grace and tenderness of form. And then I thought how the sun, at the farthest point from us, had begun to come backwards towards us, looked upon us with a hopeful smile, was like the Lord when he visited his people as a little one of themselves, to grow upon the earth till it should blossom as the rose in the light of his presence. Ah, Lord, I said in my heart, draw near unto thy people. It is springtime with thy world. But yet we have cold winds, and bitter hail, 
and pinched voices forbidding them that follow thee and follow not with us draw nearer sun of righteousness and make the trees burgeon and the flowers blossom and the voices grow mellow and glad so that all shall join in praising thee and find thereby that harmony is better than unison let it be summer o lord if it ever may be summer in this court of the gentiles but thou hast told us that thy kingdom cometh within us and so the joy must come within us too draw nigh then lord to those to whom thou wilt draw nigh and others beholding their welfare will seek to share therein too and seeing their good works will glorify their father in heaven so i walked home hoping in my saviour and wondering to think how pleasant i had found it to be his poor servant to this people already the doubts which had filled my mind on that first evening of gloom doubts as to whether i had any right to the priest's office had utterly vanished slain by the effort to perform the priest's duty i never thought about the matter now and how can doubt ever be fully met by action try your theory try your hypothesis or if it is not worth trying give it up pull it down and i hope that if ever a cloud should come over me again however dark and dismal it might be i might be able notwithstanding to rejoice that the sun was shining on others though not on me and to say with all my heart to my father in heaven thy will be done when i reached my own study i sat down by a blazing fire and poured myself out a glass of wine for i had to go out again to see some of my poor friends and wanted some luncheon first it is a great thing to have the greetings of the universe presented in fire and wood let me if i may be ever welcomed to my room in winter by a glowing hearth in summer by a vase of flowers if i may not let me then think how nice they would be and bury myself in my work i do not think that the road to contentment lies in despising what we have not got let us acknowledge all good all delight that the world holds and be content without it but this we can never be except by possessing the one thing without which i do not merely say no man ought to be content but no man can be content the spirit of the father if any young people read my little chronicle will they not be inclined to say the vicar has already given us in this chapter hardly anything but a long sermon and it is too bad of him to go on preaching in his study after we saw him safe out of the pulpit ah well just one word and i drop the preaching for a while my word is this i may speak long-windedly and even inconsiderately as regards my young readers what i say may fail utterly to convey what i mean i may be actually stupid sometimes and not have a suspicion of it but what i mean is true and if you do not know it to be true yet some of you at least suspect it to be true and some of you hope it is true and when you all see it as i mean it and as you can take it you will rejoice with a gladness you know nothing about now 
There, I have done for a little while. I won't pledge myself for more, I assure you, for to speak about such things is the greatest delight of my age, as it was of my early manhood, next to that of loving God and my neighbor. For as these are the two commandments of my life, so they are in themselves the pleasures of my life. And there I am at it again. I beg your pardon now, for I have already inadvertently broken my promise. I had allowed myself a half hour before the fire, with my glass of wine and piece of bread, and I soon fell into a dreamy state called reverie, which I fear not a few mistake for thinking, because it is the nearest approach they ever make to it. But in this reverie I kept staring about my bookshelves. I am an old man now, and you do not know my name, and if you should ever find it out, I shall very soon hide it under some daisies. I hope, and so escape. And therefore I am going to be egotistic in the most unpardonable manner. I am going to tell you one of my faults, for it continues, I fear, to be one of my faults still, as it certainly was at the period of which I am now writing. Uh, I am very fond of books. Do not mistake me. I do not mean that I love reading. I hope I do. That is no fault. A, a virtue rather than a fault. But as the old meaning of the word fond was foolish, I use that word. I am foolishly fond of the bodies of books as distinguished from their souls, or thought element. I do not say I love their bodies as divided from their souls. I do not say I should let a book stand upon my shelves for which I felt no respect, except indeed it happened to be useful to me in some inferior way. But I delight in seeing books about me, books even of which there seems to be no prospect that I shall have time to read a single chapter before I lay this old head down for the last time. And nay, more, I confess that if they are nicely bound, so as to glow and shine in such a firelight as that by which I was then sitting, I like them ever so much the better. Nay, more yet, and this comes very near to showing myself worse than I thought I was when I began to tell you my fault. There are books upon my shelves which certainly at least would not occupy the place of honor they do occupy, had not some previous owner dressed them far beyond their worth, making modern apples of Sodom of them. Yet there I let them stay, because they are pleasant to the eye, although certainly not things to be desired to make one wise. I could say a great deal more about the matter, pro and con, but it would be worse than a sermon, I fear. For I suspect that by the time books, which ought to be loved for the truth that is in them, of one sort or another, come to be loved as articles of furniture, the mind has gone through a process more than analogous to that which the miser's mind goes through, namely, that of passing from the respect of money because of what it can do, to the love of money because it is money. 
I have not yet reached the furniture stage, and I do not think I ever shall. I would rather burn them all. Meantime, I think one safeguard is to encourage one's friends to borrow one's books, not to offer individual books, which is much the same thing as offering advice. That will probably take some of the shine off them and put a few thumb marks in them, which both are very wholesome towards the arresting of the furniture declension. For my part, thumb marks I find very obnoxious, far more so than the spoiling of the binding. I know that some of my readers who have had sad experience of uh, the sort will be saying in themselves, hmm, he might have mentioned a surer antidote resulting from this measure than either rubbed Russia or dirty glove marks, even, that of utter disappearance and irreparable loss. <sighs> but no, that has seldom happened to me, because I trust my pocketbook and never my memory with the names of those to whom the individual books are committed. There, then, is a little bit of practical advice in both directions for young book lovers. Again, I am reminded that I am getting old. What digressions! Gazing about on my treasures, the thought suddenly struck me that I had never done as I had promised Judy, and never found out what her aunt's name meant in Anglo-Saxon. I would do so now. I got down my dictionary, and soon discovered that Ethelwyn meant home joy, or inheritance. What a lovely meaning, I said to myself. And then I went off into another reverie, with the composition of which I shall not trouble my reader, and with the mention of which I had perhaps uh, no right to occupy the fragment of this time spent in reading it, seeing I did not intend to tell him how it was made up. I will tell him something else instead." Several families had asked me to take my Christmas dinner with them, but not liking to be thus limited, I had answered each that I would not, if they would excuse me, but would look in some time or other in the course of the evening. When my half-hour was out, I got up and filled my pockets with little presents for my poor people, and set out to find them in their own homes." I was variously received, but unvaryingly with kindness, and my little presents were accepted, at least in most instances, with a gratitude which made me ashamed of them, and of myself, too, for a few moments. Mrs. Tompkins looked as if she had never seen so much tea together before, though there was only a couple of pounds of it, and her husband received a pair of warm trousers, none the less cordially that they were not quite new the fact being that I found I did not myself need such warm clothing this winter as I had needed the last. I did not dare offer Catherine Weir anything, but I gave her little boy a box of watercolors, in remembrance of the first time I saw him, though I said nothing about that. His mother did not thank me. She told little Gerard to do so, however, and that was something— and, indeed, the boy's sweetness would have been enough for both. Gerard, an unusual name in England, specially not to be looked for in the class to which she belonged. 
when i reached old roger's cottage whither i carried a few yards of ribbon bought by myself i assure my lady friends with the special object that the colour should be bright enough for her taste and pure enough of its kind for mine as an offering to the good dame and a small hymn-book in which were some hymns of my own making for the good man uh, but do forgive me friends for actually describing my paltry presence i can dare to assure you it comes from a talking old man's love of detail and from no admiration of such small givings as those you see i trust you and i want to stand well with you i never could be indifferent to what people thought of me though i have had to fight hard to act as freely as if i were indifferent especially when upon occasion i found myself approved of it is more difficult to walk straight then than when men are all against you as i have already broken a sentence which will not be past setting for a while yet i may as well go on to say here lest any one should remark that a clergyman ought not to show off his virtues nor yet teach his people bad habits by making them look out for presents that my income not only seemed to me disproportioned to the amount of labor necessary in the parish but certainly was larger than i required to spend upon myself and the miserly passion for books i contrived to keep a good deal in check for i had no fancy for gliding devil words for the sake of a few books after all so there was no great virtue was there in easing my heart by giving a few of the good things people give their children to my poor friends whose kind reception to them gave me as much pleasure as the gifts gave them they valued the kindness in the gift and to look out for kindness will not make people greedy when i reached the cottage i found not merely jane there with her father and mother which was natural on christmas day seeing there seemed to be no company at the hall but my little judy as well sitting in the old woman's armchair not that she used it much but it was called hers and looking as much at home as she did in the pond why judy i exclaimed you here yes why not mr walton she returned holding out her hand without rising for the chair was such a large one and she was set so far back in it that the easier way was not to rise which seeing she was not greatly overburdened with reverence was not i presume a cause of much annoyance to the little damsel i know no reason why i shouldn't see a sandwich islander here yet i might express surprise if i did find one might i not judy pretended to pout and muttered something about comparing her to a cannibal but jane took up the explanation mistress had to go off to london with her mother to-day sir quite unexpected on some banking business i fancy from what i-i beg your pardon sir uh, they're gone anyhow whatever the reason may be and so i came to see my father and mother and-and miss judy would come with me she's very welcome said mrs rogers how could i stay up there with nobody but jacob and that old wolf sarah i wouldn't be left alone with her for the world she'd have me in the bishop's pool before you came back janey dear uh, that wouldn't matter much to you would it judy i said she's a white wolf that old sarah i know 
was all her answer. But what will the old lady say when she finds you brought the young lady here? asked Mrs. Rogers. I didn't bring her mother. She would come. Besides, she'll never know it, said Judy. I did not see that it was my part to read Judy a lecture here, though perhaps I might have done so if I had had more influence over her than I had. I wanted to gain some influence over her, and knew that the way to render my desire impossible of fulfillment would be to find fault with what in her was a very small affair, whatever it might be in one who had been properly brought up. Besides, a clergyman is not a moral policeman. So I took no notice of the impropriety. Had they actually to go away on the morning of Christmas Day? I said. They went away anyhow, whether they had to do it or not, sir, answered Jane. And Ethelwyn didn't want to go till tomorrow, said Judy. She said something about coming to church this morning. But Granny said they must go at once. It was very cross of old Granny. Think what a Christmas day to me without Auntie and with Sarah. But I don't mean to go home till it's quite dark. I mean to stop here with dear old Rogers. That I do. The latch was gently lifted, and in came young Brownrig. So I thought it was time to leave my best Christmas wishes and take myself away. Old Rogers came with me to the mill stream, as usual. "'It amazes me, sir,' he said. "'A gentleman of your age, and bringing up to know all that you told us this morning. It'd be no wonder now for a man like me, uh, come to be the stock of corn fully ripe, leastways yellow and white enough outside, if there beant much more than milk inside it yet.' It'd be no mystery for a man like me who'd been brought up hard and dossed about well-nigh all over the world. Why, there's scarce a wave on the Atlantic but knows old Rogers. He made a parenthesis with a laugh and began anew. <laughs> It'd be a shame of a man like me not to know all, as you said this morning, sir, leastways I... Don't mean able to say it right off as you do, sir, but uh, to know it after the Almighty had been at such pains to beat it into my hard head just to trust in him and fear nothing and nobody, Captain Boson, Devil, Sunk Rock, or Breakers Ahead, but just to mind him and stand by halyard brace or wheel or hang on by the leeward earring, uh, for that matter. For, you see, what does it signify? Whether I go to the bottom or not, so long as I didn't skulk. Or rather, and here the old man took off his hat and looked up, so long as the great captain has his way and things is done to his mind. But however a man like you go into the college and reading books and warm nights and never by your own confession this blessed morning sir know what it is to be downright uh, hungry however you come to know all those things is just past my comprehension except by a double portion of the spirit sir and that's the way i account for it sir 
although i knew enough about a ship to understand the old man i am not sure that i have properly represented his sea phrase but that is of small consequence so long as i give his meaning and a meaning can occasionally be even better conveyed by less accurate words i will try to tell you how i come to know about these things as i do i returned how my knowledge may stand the test of further and severer trials remains to be seen but if i should fail any time old friend and neither trust in god nor do my duty what i have said to you remains true all the same that it do sir whoever may come short and more than that failure does not necessarily prove any one to be a hypocrite of no faith he may still be a man of little faith surely surely sir i remember once that my faith broke down just for a moment sir and then the lord gave me my way lest i should blaspheme him in thy wicked heart uh, how was that rogers a scream came from the quarter-deck and then the cry child overboard there was but one child the captain's aboard i was sitting just after the foremast herring boning a split in the spare jib i sprang to the bulwark and there sure enough was a child going fast astern but pretty high in the water how it happened i can't think to this day sir but i i suppose my needle in the hurry had got into my jacket so as to skewer it to my jersey for we were far south of the line at the time sir it was cold however that may be as soon as i was overboard which you may be sure didn't want the time i take telling it i found that i ought to have pulled my jacket off afore i gave the bulwark the last kick so i rose on the water and began to pull it over my head for it was wide and that was the easiest way i thought in the water but when i had got it right over my head there it stuck and there was i blind as a dutchman in a fog and in as straight a jacket as ever poor wretch in bedlam for i could only just wag my flippers mr walton i believe i swore the lord forgive me but it was trying and what was far worse for one moment i, I disbelieved him and i do say that's worse than swearing in a hurry i mean in that moment something went the jacket was off and there was i feeling as if every stroke i took was as wide as a mainyard i had no time to repent only to thank god and wasn't it more than i deserved sir ah he can rebuke a man for unbelief by giving him the desire of his heart and that's a better rebuke than tying him up to the gratings and did you save the child oh yes sir and wasn't the captain pleased i i believe he was sir he gave me a glass of grog sir but you was a saying of something sir when i interrupted of you i am very glad you did interrupt me I, i'm not though sir i've lost some it I, i'll never hear more no you shan't lose it i was going to tell you how i think i came to understand 
a little about the things I was talking of today. Uh, that's it, sir. That's it. Well, sir, if you please. You've heard of Sir Philip Sidney, haven't you, old Rogers? <laughs> he was a great joker, wasn't he, sir? No, no, you're thinking of Sidney Smith Rogers. It may be, sir, I am an ignorant man. You are no more ignorant than you ought to be, but it is time you should know of him, for he was just one of your sort. Uh, I will come down some evening and tell you about him. I may as well mention here that this led to week evening lectures in the barn, which, with the help of Weir, the carpenter, was changed into a comfortable room with fixed seats all around it, and plenty of cane chairs besides, for I always disliked forms in the middle of a room. The object of these lectures was to make the people acquainted with the true heroes of their own country, men great in themselves. And the kind of choice I made may be seen by those who know about both, from the fact that while my first two lectures were on Philip Sidney, I did not give one whole lecture even to Walter Raleigh, grand fellow as he was. I wanted chiefly to set forth the men that could rule themselves, first of all, after a noble fashion. But I have not finished these lectures yet, for I never wished to confine them to the English heroes. I am going on still, old man as I am, not, however, without retracing past ground sometimes, for a new generation has come up since I came here, and there is a new one behind coming up now, which I may be honored to present in its turn to some of this grand company, this cloud of witnesses to the truth in our own and other lands, some of whom subdued kingdoms, and others were tortured to death, for the same cause and with the same result. Meantime, I went on, I only want to tell you one little thing he says in a letter to a younger brother whom he wanted to turn out as fine a fellow as possible. It is about horses, or rather riding, for Sir Philip was the best horseman in Europe in his day, as indeed all things taken together he seems to have really been the most accomplished man generally of his time in the world. Writing to this brother, he says, I could not repeat the words exactly to old Rogers, but I think it better to copy them exactly in writing this account of our talk. At horsemanship, when you exercise it, read Chris and Claudio, and a book that is called La Gloria del Cavallo, with all that you may join the thorough contemplation of it with the exercise, and so shall you profit more in a month than others in a year. I think I see what you mean, sir. I had got to learn it all without a book, as it were, though you know I had my old Bible that my mother gave me, and without that I should not have learned at all. I only mean it comparatively, you know. You have had more of the practice, and I more of the theory. But if we had not both had both, we should neither of us had known anything about the matter. I never was content without trying at least to understand things. And if they are practical things, and you try to practice them at the same time as far as you do understand them, there is no end to the way in which the one lights up the other. I suppose that is how, 
without your experience, I have more to say about such things than you could expect. You know besides that a small matter in which a principle is involved will reveal the principle, if attended to, just as well as a great one containing the same principle. The only difference, and that a most important one, is that though I've got my clay and my straw together, and they stick pretty well as yet, my brick, after all, is not half so well baked as yours, old friend, and it may crumble away yet, though I hope not. I pray God to make both our bricks into stones of the new Jerusalem, sir. I think I understand you quite well. I know about a thing is of no use, except you do it. Besides, as I found out when I went to sea, you never can know a thing till you do it. Though I thought I had a tidy fancy about some things beforehand. It's better not to be quite sure that all your seams are cocked, and so to keep a lookout on the bilge pump, isn't it, sir? During most of this conversation, we were standing by the mill water, half frozen over. The ice from both sides came towards the middle, leaving an empty space between, along which the dark water showed itself, hurrying away as if in fear of its life from the white death of the frost. The wheel stood motionless, and the drip from the thatch of the mill over it in the sun had frozen in the shadows into icicles, which hung in long spikes from the spokes and the floats, making the wheel soft green and mossy when it revolved in the gentle, sun-mingled summer water, look like its own gray skeleton now. The sun was getting low, and I should want all my time to see my other friends before dinner, for I would not willingly offend Mrs. Pearson on Christmas Day by being late, especially as I guess she was using extraordinary skill to prepare me a more than comfortable meal. I must go, old Rogers, I said, but I will leave you something to think about till we meet again. Find out why our Lord was so much displeased with the disciples, whom he knew to be ignorant men, for not knowing what he meant when he warned them against the leaven of the Pharisees. I want to know what you think about it. You'll find the story told both in the 16th chapter of St. Matthew and the 8th of St. Mark. Well, sir, I'll try, that is, if you will tell me what you think about it afterwards, so as to put me right if, if I'm wrong. Of course I will. I, I can find out an explanation to satisfy me, but it is not at all clear to me now. In fact, I do not see the connecting links of our Lord's logic in the rebuke he gives them. How oh, am I to find out then, sir, knowing nothing of logic at all? said the old man, his rough, worn face summered over with his childlike smile. There are many things which a little learning, while it cannot really hide them, may make you less ready to see all at once, I answered, shaking hands with old Rogers and then springing across the brook with my carpet-bag in my hand. By the time I had got through the rest of my calls, the fogs were rising from the streams and the meadows, 
to close in upon my first Christmas day in my own parish. How much happier I was than when I came such a few months before. The only pang I felt that day was as I passed the monsters on the gate leading to Old Castle Hall. Should I be honored to help only the poor of the flock? Was I to do nothing for the rich for whom it is and has been and doubtless will be so hard to enter into the kingdom of heaven? And it seemed to me at the moment that the world must be made for the poor. They had so much more done for them to enable them to inherit it than the rich had. To these people at the hall I did not seem acceptable. I might in time do something with Judy, but the old lady was still so dreadfully repulsive to me that it troubled my conscience to feel how I disliked her. Mr. Stoddart seemed nothing more than a dilettante in religion, as well as in the arts and sciences, music always excepted. While for Miss Oldcastle I simply did not understand her yet, and she was so beautiful. I thought her more beautiful every time I saw her, but I never appeared to make the least progress towards any real acquaintance with her thoughts and feelings. It seemed to me, I say for a moment, coming from the houses of the warm-hearted poor, as if the rich had not quite fair play, as it were, as if they were sent into the world chiefly for the sake of the cultivation of the virtues of the poor, and without much chance for the cultivation of their own. I know better than this, you know, my reader, but the thought came, as thoughts will come sometimes. It vanished the moment I sought to lay hands upon it, as if I knew quite well it had no business there. But certainly I did believe that it was more like the truth to say the world was made for the poor than to say that it was made for the rich. And therefore I longed the more to do something for these whom I considered the rich of my flock. For it was dreadful to think of their being poor inside instead of outside. Perhaps my reader will say, and say with justice, that I ought to have been as anxious about the poor farmer Brownrig as about the beautiful lady. But the farmer will have given me good reason to hope some progress in him after the way he had given in about Jane Rogers. Positively I had caught his eye during the sermon that very day. And besides, but I will not be a hypocrite, and seeing I did not certainly take the same interest in Mr. Brownrigg, I will at least be honest and confess it. As far as regards the discharge of my duties, I trust I should have behaved impartially had the necessity for my choice arisen. But my feelings were not quite under my own control, and we are nowhere told to love everybody alike, only to love everyone who comes within reach as ourselves. I wonder whether my old friend Dr. Duncan was right. He had served on shore in Egypt under General Abercrombie, and had, of course, after the fighting was over on each of the several occasions, the French being always repulsed, exercised his office amongst the wounded left on the field of battle. I do not know, he said, whether I did right or not, but I always took the man I came to first, French or English. 
I only know that my heart did not wait for the opinion of my head on the matter. I loved the old man the more that he did as he did, but as a question of casuistry I am doubtful about its answer. This digression is, I fear, unpardonable. I made Mrs. Pearson sit down with me to dinner, for Christmas Day was not one to dine alone upon, and I have ever since had my servants to dine with me on Christmas Day. Then I went out and made another round of visits, coming in for a glass of wine at one table, an orange at another, and a hot chestnut at a third. Those whom I could not see that day I saw on the following days between it and the new year, and so ended my Christmas holiday with my people. But there is one little incident which I ought to relate before I close this chapter, and which I am ashamed of having so nearly forgotten. When we had finished our dinner I was sitting alone, drinking a glass of claret before going out again. Mrs. Pearson came in and told me that little Gerard Weir wanted to see me. I asked her to show him in, and the little fellow entered, looking very shy and clinging first to the door and then to the wall. Come in, my dear boy, I said, and sit down by me. He came directly and stood before me. Would you like a little wine and water, I said, for unhappily there was no dessert. Mrs. Pearson, knowing that uh, I never eat such things. No, no thank you, sir. I never tasted wine. I did not press him to take it. Please, sir, he went on after a pause, putting his hand in his pocket. Mother gave me some goodies, and I kept them till I saw you come back. And here they are, sir. Does any reader doubt what I did or said upon this? I said, Thank you, my darling, and I ate them up, every one of them, that he might see me eat them before he left the house, and the dear child went off, radiant. If anybody cannot understand why I did so, I beg him to consider the matter. If then he cannot come to a conclusion concerning it, I doubt if any explanation of mine would greatly subserve his enlightenment. Meantime, I am forcibly restraining myself from yielding to the temptation to set forth my reasons, which would result in a half-hour's sermon on the Jewish dispensation, including the burnt offering and the wave and heave offerings, with an application to the ignorant nurses and mothers of English babies, who do the best they can to make original sin an actual fact by training children down in the way they should not go. End of chapter 11, part 2